You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. We're going to start today's show with a quick update. You may remember Zachary Anderson. I ranted about him at the top of the podcast a couple of months ago. He's a teenager in Indiana from a small town. When he was 19 years old, just nine or 10 months out of high school himself, he met a girl online who told him that she was 17 and he went to meet her in Michigan where she lived. He went for a little road trip and the two wound up having sex in his car and he wound up getting arrested. And the girl testified at his trial that she had misled him, that she had lied to him and told him that she was 17, that she met him on a dating app where she was not legally allowed to be, and that the sex that she had, even though she was a minor, was fully consensual, that he hadn't pressured her or coerced her in any way. And Zachary Anderson ended up being convicted of statutory rape and sentenced to 90 days in jail and a lifetime on the sex offender registry which included a ban on him ever owning a computer in his life again, which was really problematic because he was studying computer science and working for his parents' graphic design firm, which required him to use computers. So when he got out of jail, his life was going to be severely circumscribed by this sentence, by him being tossed onto the sex offender registry for the rest of his life. And why was he going to be on the sex offender registry for the rest of his life? We talked about this too. The judge, this asshole named Wiley, when he sentenced him, didn't throw the book at Zachary Anderson because of the statutory rape element of his case. That wasn't what obsessed the judge. The judge condemned Zachary Anderson at sentencing for online dating, for using a hookup app, for going onto the internet to meet women. You went online to use a fisherman's expression, trolling for women to meet and have sex with them, the judge said at his sentencing. That seems to be part of our culture now. Meet, hook up, have sex, sayonara. Totally inappropriate behavior. No excuse for this whatsoever. Literally threw the book at this kid for doing what everybody is doing online. Tinder, Grinder. Match.com, all of these hookup apps that people are using. This poor teenager, this 19-year-old kid was going to have his life destroyed because Judge Dennis M. Wiley disapproves of hookup culture and dating apps. There was an outcry. The kid wound up on ABC News. I ranted about it. Lots of people began to rant about it. And this asshole judge, Dennis M. Wiley, vacated his sentence and then recused himself. And now another judge is going to hand down a sentence. Anyway, that's the good news. Zachary Anderson, no longer, hopefully, going to be on a sex offender registry for the rest of his life. Probably shouldn't have been convicted of a crime. In the place where he was tried, in many states, you can use in your defense the fact that the person that you had sex with lied to you and misled you. But in the state where Zachary Anderson lives, in the state where he's tried, you cannot use that as a defense. So the fact that this girl at 14 lied to Zachary Anderson and, and told him that she was 17 – can't be used in his defense. So he's still going to be sentenced to something. Still time served, still this thing on his record, but hopefully not the kind of sentence that will destroy his life. So that's Zachary Anderson update. We have a new case though. This happened while I was away. I wish I could have jumped on this sooner. There's a kid in North Carolina 
Cormega Copening, high school kid, good-looking kid, captain of the football team or the quarterback on the football team. I don't understand if that's the same role or that's different. Football, high school football, what do I know? He was arrested and charged as an adult at 17 with exploiting a minor. And the minor that he exploited was himself. He had photos on his own phone of his own self naked. And the police conducting an investigation at his high school, trying to find kids who were sharing photos of other kids non-consensually, searched Copening's phone and found these pictures of himself, dirty pictures he took of himself and shared with his girlfriend. And he is charged as an adult under federal child pornography statutes for taking pictures of himself. This is Kafka-esque shit. Charged as an adult for taking pictures of himself as a minor. Charged as an adult for exploiting and abusing a minor, that minor being himself. So he's a minor when he took the picture, but an adult when we want to charge him. He pleaded guilty because it was the only way to avoid, guess what, winding up on a sex offender registry for the rest of his life. Prosecutors in crazy places like North Carolina will frequently do this. They will bring charges against a teenager for sexting and threaten them if they go to trial and they lose with landing on a sex offender registry for the rest of their lives, which essentially ends their lives. And there has been one case where a teenager threatened with landing on a sex offender registry for the rest of his life or the crime of streaking at a football game killed himself because his life was over. The same logic that leads to us charging a minor with violating a minor for taking a picture of himself and sharing it with his own girlfriend who shared it with no one else by that same logic, we should arrest teenagers who masturbate for sexually assaulting themselves. It is legal for 16-year-olds to have sex in North Carolina, where Kamega Copening lives and his girlfriend lives. Legal for them to be sexually active at age 16. Illegal for them to sext. Yes, you can legally have sex. No, you cannot legally sext. That's crazy. There have been a lot of kids charged under these sexting laws. A lot of kids swept up under child pornography statutes for taking pictures of themselves and sharing them with their boyfriends or girlfriends. Statistics show that 30 to 50 percent of teenagers have engaged in sexting. Do we really want to round up every other kid in the country and throw them in jail or put them on a sex offender registry and destroy their lives? It seems that some people do. We're finally walking back drug prohibition. We're finally talking about reducing sentences for drug crimes. We're finally in Washington and Oregon and Washington, D.C. and Alaska. We are legalizing recreational marijuana use. One of the arguments against the prohibition of drugs has always been that it just empowers the government to arrest anybody they want to because everybody is in violation of some drug law or other. Almost everybody has smoked a little pot. Your mother, she went in to have a root canal and she had an extra Percocet after the pain wore off and she let you have it. Your mother is guilty of a Class B felony for allowing you to have that narcotic, to use it recreationally. Your mom's going to jail. This is the same thing where we have these laws covering sexting, criminalizing sexting, while we know that everybody's engaging in it. So you just pick up any young person's phone and start going through it and you can find evidence that they have committed a crime. It empowers police and prosecutors 
to go after anybody they want under 18. And I don't think that it's a coincidence necessarily that this kid that the police and prosecutors in North Carolina went after is an African-American kid. Black Lives Matter. Here we have another African-American young male being sucked into the criminal justice system for doing something that should not be a crime, for doing something that 30 to 50 percent of his peers are also doing. It's fucking crazy. It has to stop. And this case just seems equal parts adult terror of teen sexuality and, sorry, adult white fucking North Carolina official terror of African-American males and their sexuality. Cormega Copening. There's a huge outcry over Zachary Anderson, white kid from Indiana, and there seems now to be some justice coming his way. Not the justice he fully deserves, which is to have those charges dropped and his record cleared. But there hasn't been an outcry as loud for Cormega Copening as the outcry for Zachary Anderson. And there really should be. Some great stuff's been written. Reason.com wrote a great piece. The Fayetteville Observer, to their credit, has been all over it. But ABC News, get on this one. National media, get on this one. What's being done to this kid is as outrageous and unjust as what was done to Zachary Anderson. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your questions. And coming up in the Magnum, an extended interview and conversation with my old buddy, trans pioneer Kate Bornstein, where we talk about the T word, we talk about Caitlyn Jenner, and we talk about Kate's history with Scientology back in the early days. She knew L. Ron Hubbard, and she's here to dish the dirt with us about him and everything else on today's show. Hi, Dan. I am a 25-year-old gay man in the uh, East Coast. I have two questions. One is I have been a bottom almost my whole life. And the reason being is not that I, you know, love, I'm, I'm, I'm a power bottom or anything. It's just that my penis doesn't get as hard as, you know, normal guys um, for me to penetrate. So I, you know, when I first tried it, I had such a hard time to penetrate someone. So, and then I tried a couple of times after that, and it, it, it's kind of like, you know, a continuation. So I sort of just stop and become this bottom boy, you know, by default, you know, even though I would love, would love to top. And also I had tried, you know, Viagra and everything, and it's, it doesn't necessarily work for me at all. So my question is, what should I do? Because my partner right now, but he said he's a verse top. Um, but at some point, I would like to please him as well. So sometimes I get really stressed out on like, oh my God, how am I going to please him? You know, if he wants to bottom. And, you know, I kind of like get a little freak out about it. Um, my second question is that I have a hard time coming when I get fucked. Because when I watch porn, I can come easily, no problem. Like, it has never been an issue when I watch porn. But when I have sex, sometimes I come, sometimes I don't, but it doesn't mean that I don't like the sex or anything. Sometimes I just I just love getting fucked and can come inside me without even having to come. And I still enjoy that. But I don't want 
my partner to the second lead thing that, you know, oh, I'm not attracted to him and stuff like that, you know, and sometimes I feel like I'm under pressure, like, oh my God, I guess it shouldn't come, it should come, but it doesn't come naturally like that. So what should I do? I'm going to take your questions in reverse order. We're going to start with question number two. You have a hard time coming while you're getting fucked, uh, but you don't want your partner to think you're not enjoying yourself. That's easily handled. That's called use your words. Just reassure your partner that when you bottom, you totally enjoy it, but it's a different sort of sexual experience for you, and it's not about your dick, and it's not about having an orgasm. It is about giving yourself to him. It is about having him inside you. It is about getting cum inside you. And that's why I'm starting with question number two. I want to address that. The problem here, what if my partner thinks I'm not so into him or into the sex? Easily handled. Talk to your partner, reassure him, keep bottoming for him, and eventually he will get the impression that you really do like this even if it doesn't end with orgasm for you every time. Getting come inside you. I tried to get you on the phone and failed. I wanted to ask you if – you have tested if your partner who's coming inside you has tested if you guys are fluid bonded, as they used to say, are you sexually exclusive? Are you the only people that each other are sleeping with? Or are you sleeping with other people? If you're both sleeping with other people, are you using condoms with those other people? Are you on Truveda, which is a very effective way of preventing HIV infection? There are, of course, other sexually transmitted infections that you have to worry about, syphilis, gonorrhea, and the rest – just wanted to address that. I get it. I get how wonderful it is to come inside someone or have someone come inside you. But there are risks that are built into that. And you need to be cognizant of those risks and control for them and mitigate them in every way that you can, which would include using Truveda or using condoms or using both or using condoms with other partners if this isn't a sexually exclusive relationship and testing and keeping the lines of communication open. But you, if come inside you, is a hugely important part of your sexual identity, of your sexual expression, a hugely important part of the turn-on for you when it comes to getting fucked, get on Truveda. As for question number one, you've been a bottom your whole life by default. It seems to me that you're pretty well adjusted, that your dick works the way it works and you enjoy it and you have your orgasms, you watch porn, you can come, you can come during sex. I assume you can come during mutual masturbation, rolling around, and that you can come during oral sex because you would have said something if you couldn't come, I infer, but doing those things. So it's just penetration, that your dick isn't built for penetrating. And you have adjusted well. You are your butt. You're built to be penetrated and you enjoy it. But what about your partner who is a verse top or as we call them around here, a bottom? What about your partner who's a verse top and his needs? Well – you can't fuck him with your dick, but you can fuck him with other stuff. There are toys. There are dildos. There are strap-ons. You can find porn now online where people are using – guys who have dicks are also using strap-ons. Sometimes guys who have a problem with premature ejaculation and a partner who likes to go and go and go and go before they come will use a strap-on and then swap in their dick toward the end of the fucking. There are some guys who are in chastity who have – chastity devices on their penises, but they have partners, male or female, who still want to be fucked and they fuck them with a strap on, but not their own dick because for whatever dumb sub power play thing that they're enjoying, they're not allowed to use their penises, but their partners still want to get fucked. You can still fuck your partner in that circumstance with a strap on. You can also, if this is an open relationship, allow your partner to get fucked by other people. 
no one can be all things sexually to uh, another human being. And if there is a big missing piece and you don't want to ask your partner to pay that price of admission to be with you if you don't want them to have to go without that experience or that pleasure or that particular act uh, as a consequence of loving you and, and being with you and committing to you, you can pat them on the head and give them your permission to when your partner needs to get his bottom on, get his bottom on with somebody else. Hi, Dan and Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am in a bit of a conundrum. I'm a 41-year-old woman. I know that much. I am also married to a woman for five years. I have a three-year-old child. And I've identified as a lesbian for 15 years. Uh, however, I recently met and fell in love with a man and uh, it was completely unplanned and kind of crazy, and it tapped into something that has been missing in my life for a very long time. There's a element of dumb sub stuff and just being held and feeling valued that has been missing from my relationship since the get-go. My relationship has been very vanilla, and I think we fell out of love pretty much as soon as we got married. But there's a kid involved and we're married and we have a house and I know that this man is not going to be in my life forever. He's 27. As I said, I'm 41. As hot as it is, I am old enough to be realistic about the expiration date on these things. So it's not a question of do I leave her for him? It's more a question of my sexuality has changed, and I don't know where to go from here. I don't see myself going back to the boring vanilla lesbian sex life and being satisfied with it. And I also feel like I need to feel loved and valued, but I'm scared to death of leaving my son. And I don't want to break up our family unit because my wife loves him. I love her. Just not in love with her, and I don't know where to go from here. So I'm calling you because you can sort these things out, and I'm hoping you'll sort me out. So this boyfriend that you've got, yeah, can't do that. Uh, hot is the wife aware of the boyfriend's existence? Oh yeah. Oh good. But but not in the sense that uh, of um, the involvement of our. It, when our I, involvement with each other. When I say, is the wife aware of the boyfriend's existence, I mean, does the wife know you're fucking this guy? No. Okay. No. So that, that was a very politic answer. You should run for office. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to me that you're headed in two directions here with your marriage and your relationship. You're either going to have openness, and you already have openness. You're either going to have openness and honesty – and your wife is going to have that option as well to pursue passion and sex elsewhere, right? Or you're going to have a divorce mm -hmm. because you're not going to be happy and content in this relationship with things as they are now, right? Precisely, yes. Right. So you need to level with the wife about what it is you want. I don't know if you need to tell her about this affair that's already ongoing and underway, but to go to her and talk about what's current and what's known to both of you, that you'd love each other, right? Maybe you're not in passionate, romantic, sexual love anymore. And a lot of people, that happens in a lot of long-term relationships. 
that passionate, sexual, romantic love, that connection that we mistake for love or believe is the only kind of love, that burns out. And what remains is bonds of affection and intimacy that is a more day-in, day-out kind of familial love. Right. But we have this hunger for both. We want both in our lives. We want both from one partner. And you know, I think reality shows that you can't always have that in one partner, that you can have stability, regularity, intimacy, comfort uh, with one person. And if you want, you know, boot knocking, crazy sex, passion, desire, you're going to maybe have to find somebody else for that every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And, and you've obviously given yourself permission to go for that. And you need to give your wife permission to go for that as well. Yeah. Well, we, we've had that discussion and she's clearly, um, so she says, you know, yeah, you can fuck whoever you want to fuck. She, it's I'm very off the cuff. She doesn't like to go into it. And it, and if you push even a little bit, she freaks out. But she said, and, she, and, she has said to you, you can fuck whoever you want to fuck. Yeah, she said that, but uh, I, I don't think there's any um, actual intent or meaning behind it. Okay, so yeah, she what she means is you can do what you need to do. I'd rather you weren't doing it, but whatever, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you can take that and run with it as you have. <laughs> Congratulations and, <laughs> and good for you, and the sex sounds hot. But at the very least, you need to have a conversation with her that says not this particular thing is happening necessarily. If you think it's going to be super explosive or you need to roll it out very carefully – but mm-hmm. but some convo that 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 permits for it allows for it that makes you feel less like a you know you're sneaking around we have a great connection we're really good parents we're really good partners we've built a good life together it would be a shame to throw that all away because we will each of us at certain points probably need to find sexual passion elsewhere mhm mhm and so i just, you just want that to make that explicit and permissible and mutually permissible, and it might help her to know that you've already done it, so that if she's on the rack about doing it herself, she steps off that rack and goes and does it. Right. Yeah, I just don't see her doing that, um, and I see I, I see her becoming resentful and and angry because I obviously have and will pursue that, and that takes time away from the family and resources that we don't have. And, you know, you're spending time. We barely have time to spend together and mm-hmm. you're spending all your time, you know, finding and fucking other people. The paradox is, of course, going over well. if you were getting these needs met elsewhere, you would probably enjoy your time with her more because she wouldn't then symbolize to you the reason you can't have these things that, you know, mm-hmm. you can get to a place where I can have you, we can have our family and we can have these other things too. This other element that clearly isn't a part of our bond. Clearly, whatever our, our love and our relationship is about, it's not about this kind of sexual passion and fire. And mm-hmm. do we want to end our marriage and break up our kids home to accommodate for passion and desire? Or do we want to keep everything we have and allow for passion and desire in the margins with others in a controlled and mutually considered way. And right. to me, that seems like the sensible option. And maybe you need to find a poly positive, sex positive therapist, couples counselor to unpack this with. But, but in, yeah. the end, in the end, she decides that she doesn't want to be in any sort of open relationship. And she's only giving you that permission under duress because she's afraid you'll leave her. Otherwise, maybe it does need to end if that's not the kind of relationship she wants. It's the relationship she's in. She doesn't know it right now. And I think she kind of has a right to know it. 
Yeah. No, I absolutely agree with you. I have an obligation and she has a right. And, and you know, you worry about exploding things, right? But things mm-hmm. may need to be exploded. Lots right. Of, kids do fine with parents who've divorced and work it out. Yeah. I, I mean, that is my primary concern. I mean, my number one concern is not destabilizing my son's life, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how old is any more than need be. Roughly how old is your son? Three and a half. Toddler. Okay, toddler. It would be less traumatic now than when he was 11 or nine. Yeah. Still traumatic. I don't want to downplay the pain of divorce. My parents got divorced. It was a shit show and very painful for all of us, all of our kids, all my parents' kids. But we're fine. We all got through it. Mom and dad ended up in new relationships that made them both happier, and we could see that, and that was good. Right? And a a relationship can Mm -hmm. end and still have been a success. Right. Right. But a relationship that has all sorts of deceit and bad feeling and policing and paranoia hardwired into it because one suspects that something is going on and the other knows that that is going on, what they're suspected of, that just becomes, you know, Stasi shit and, and, and horrible and, and, and painful for all. And the kid is going to pick up on that tension and that – and it will extinguish your love for each other as partners, parents, and friends. And – there's a, lot, yeah. there's a lot of really good and decent lasting marriages where the love is partner, parent, friend love and not whatever it is you have with your Dom Subby 27-year-old boyfriend. That, that passion, that mm-hmm. intensity, that romantic, sexual uh, – and that's I, I am certainly not anyone to tell people that that shit ain't important. That shit is important. People need it. They're wired for it. They seek it mm-hmm. and they ache for it when it's missing from their lives. Mm-hmm. and it's not there in your marriage and you need to be straight with your wife. This isn't part of our marriage. I have to have this. You probably have to have it too. How can we save our marriage and allow for this? Both of us mm-hmm. to have it and support each other in having it. Or how do we, how do we unwind this marriage in a way that, that, that makes it possible for us to still love each other as friends and parents and that kind of partnership, if not a marriage anymore, I would just throw it down, put it all on the table, throw it down, throw it down. <laughs> I would, I would, if I, well, and it's easy yeah. for me to say, like, I'm not in your shoes and I'm sure it's right. Well, we kind- do have a therapy session coming up. So <laughs> ironically, lay it down. Yeah. The worst that can happen is you're going to wind up divorcing and separating and mm-hmm. you will be able to find the things in your life that make you happy that you need and be focused on your kid. All that throughout that entire process, make sure it's good and safe and calm for that kid. Or you're going to have what you have now, but without the deceit and the lying and the running around. And she will Mm -hmm. come around to reconcile herself or find it herself too. And then you'll have to face that, that when she's dashing out to go see her, whatever, Mm -hmm. her, the person that she has sex with, that cranks her up. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know. I, I, I'm seeking to lack the jealousy gene. So, which is, I guess a good thing. You lack it or she lacks it? I, I, I lack it. Yeah, me too. She's it's my superpower. <laughs> it's a good superpower to have. I think it's closely, it's, it must be really close to the fashion sense gene because I don't have either of those. Maybe they're both missing together. <laughs> yeah, we're on the same page there too. Well, good luck. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for your call. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, hello, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a 16-year-old trans guy living in 
Michigan, soon to be living in Massachusetts because I'm going off to college. Um, and everyone at the college is going to be the same age as me because it's an early college. And I was talking to a friend who goes there, and she says that there's a lot of sex happening at, you know, that happens at the first week, uh, especially. And I have uh, never had sex before, um, partly because I'm a little bit younger and partly because I, you know, have some insecurity and dysphoria. Um, And, you know, I think that sex is something that I really want, but I don't know if I want my first time to be with someone that I'm really emotionally attached to or to be with someone uh, who's more of a close friend and that I know I won't regret doing it later with. I don't think you can game all this out in advance this thoroughly. You can sit uh, at home before you go to school and you can, and congratulations on getting into uh, college at age 16. That's a tremendous achievement. You can game this all out sitting at home about how exactly you want this to go down. And I think it's good to think those things through in advance. But what is likely to happen is you will meet somebody and there will be a spark or there will be a moment or some, you will have a friend and there will be, you'll reach, you'll, you'll arrive at this tipping point, hopefully not an alcohol induced tipping point where you realize that, you know, there's some, connection, there's some electricity, and you will make a decision in that moment about whether this is the right person and whether you want to go for it in that moment. And all the sort of plotting and thinking that you may have done in advance about the ideal person, ideally it would be someone I'm really attracted to, or ideally it would be a close friend where it wouldn't feel awkward afterwards. I promise you if you lose your virginity to a close friend, it will feel awkward afterward. Awkwardness is part of sex, even Occasionally partnered sex with people you've been having sex with for a long time. Awkwardness cannot be avoided. It could be either of those people or somebody to be named later. It could be a complete stranger. That happens. It could be someone that you met at a party that night and hung out with and liked and wound up making out with and wound up hooking up with. It's good to think about these things in advance. It's good to game it out so that in the moment you're remembering to use birth control, if that's something that you're going to need to use in the moment, in the moment you're remembering to advocate for your own safety and to advocate for your own pleasure, in the moment you are remembering to give and get explicit, unambiguous consent, so it's not all blurry, and in the moment if you are too drunk, and I hope you're not going to be getting drunk at college at age 16, but if you are too drunk or people are too high that rather than going for it in that moment when you may be feeling it, you say, I'm feeling it and I would like to, when we meet up again later, here's my phone number. What's your phone number? Oh, I think you're really hot, but not tonight. And I think if you game all that shit out in advance, you're likelier to do that kind of consent, self-preservation, self-advocacy stuff in the moment if you've thought it through. But after thinking it all through, you're going to have to let it go. Right, You're going to have to let shit unfold, let shit happen, see who comes before you and is the right person for that first sexual experience. And it may be someone totally unexpected. You could make up your mind in advance that it's going to be a close friend or it's going to be someone you're really attracted to. Hopefully, close friend or not, it'll be someone you're really attracted to. But in the moment, it could be a very unexpected person that turns out to be the right person and the person you could not have anticipated. Enjoy. Hey, Dan. Uh, I was just calling because I uh, 
been on a few dates with a girl recently, and uh, we've gotten along really well. Uh, I'm at a point in my life where I'm kind of looking for more serious dating, and she's one of the first people I've kind of made a nice, genuine connection with uh, in a little while. Um, and uh, recently realized that I banged her ex-roommate and really good friend for like the last 12 years. Uh, it was like four years ago when that happened, uh, but uh, she had lunch with that friend recently, and uh, I was telling her about myself, and uh, and that's when she's like, "Huh, oh, I know that guy. We uh, banged and had a purely sexual relationship. So she uh, asked me if uh, it was, I guess, the same apartment even that she lives in now, and uh, I didn't remember that at the time, but... Uh, she asked if I did, and that's kind of when I was reminded that, uh, oh, yeah, I did uh, maybe have sex with somebody there. Anyway, understandably, she was a little weirded out about it. You know, I told her uh, basically that I was interested in her, uh, that, uh, you know, who I was four years ago is a guy that had a little bit more casual sex in my life, and that's not what I'm working for right now. But uh, we're still going on another date, but uh, it was understandably weird. And I'm just wondering... What are some ways to make this less weird so that we can keep trying to do this? Here's how you make it less weird. You be gay people about it. Straight people have this problem. We've, we've unpacked this from different angles in the past. We've examined this straight phenomena when it comes in, in different circumstances previously, such as you can never date anyone I've dated. That weird pact that straight people make with their friends where anybody that you've ever dated or touched with your genitals is – unkosher. They cannot touch that person. They are unclean and it is a violation of your friendship if your good friend or best friend dates somebody that you dated previously. And you don't hear that from gay people and you don't see that in gay land because there's so many fewer of us that we don't have this luxury of dictating to our friends who they can and cannot date because we dated them first or fucked them first or hooked up with them first or whatever. We don't declare people off limits because there aren't enough of us to go around if we engaged in that kind of horseshit. So one way to make this less weird is you could just shake hands and agree to be faggots about this and not be weird, territorial, insecure, bullshitty straight people about it. Another way to make it less weird is just allow time to do its thing. Weird, awkward, you can't control for that. The only way to get past awkward is to push through awkward. Like, yeah, that's a little awkward that I fucked your friend in your apartment four years ago before we met and started dating. What can you do about it? Can't get in a time machine and unfuck your friend like you would like to continue to date you. Yeah, let's put this past us. Let's fuck that memory away. Let's dilute the memory of me having fucked your friend in your apartment four years ago by having me fuck you in your apartment lots and lots and lots. Until that previous fucking is a footnote attached to all of our massively enjoyable fuckfests. So be fags about it or just allow it to be awkward, allow it to be weird, and tell yourselves that it will feel less weird and less awkward in time. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight man living in the Midwest, and I've been dating my current girlfriend for two years, and we have a potential future problem looming, which is that she's made it very clear to me that any partner that she would have for life who she would conceive children with, she'd want them to undergo labor simulation um, if she was going to be you know, bearing the pregnancy. 
And I find that um, something that I would be completely opposed to personally, and I don't think that Empathy works that way, but she seems quite set on it. So what do you think we should do? You should get a vasectomy. That's what you should do. Or you shouldn't marry this crazy person. Sometimes when people call and ask me a question, I will say, get thee to Google, go, go look it up online. You can find information about it pretty easy. And I looked up labor simulation. And the first thing Google told me to look at was labor simulation for men. And there are videos where men go and have what in BDSM land is called e-stim devices, torture devices, but sort of electrostimulation pads attached to their abdomens. And they are then shocked. They are the doctor. There's a doctor in these videos who programs a computer to simulate what the contractions women experience during labor feel like. And the men howl and scream and roll around on the floor. If you like to see men suffer, if you're a fan of Eastim and medical fetish play scenarios, you will want to watch these videos. They will make you wet and or hard or both. Should all guys who have pregnant wives have to do this? I don't know. It seems a little silly to me. Yeah, it hurts and sucks and labor, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. But to say to your male partner, you got to suffer too with me just seems a little batty. I think most men, most straight men, appreciate that giving birth is difficult and most are going to be there for the birth. And I think that's reasonable to ask your guy to be there for the birth. Guys, my advice is not to be right between the legs. Don't look. You get letters. Every, I'm not saying this happens in all cases, but you get letters every once in a while from some guy who's having a really hard time tapping back into what he found exciting about his wife's vagina. That feeling of wanting to press his face into his wife's vagina when he's seen somebody else's face pop out of his wife's vagina. So my advice is for you to stand up by the shoulders and let the doctor watch the face pop out of your wife's vagina. Not because in all instances it ruins it for you, but in a certain small percentage it does. And I don't think that small risk is worth it because the consequences potentially are so sex life disabling. So anyway, yeah, don't have babies with this woman. That would be my advice. And if she's into pain play and medical fetish scenes and Eastim, she should be honest about that. She should either get honest about her interest in BDSM and seeing a man suffer or you should find a girlfriend who isn't into watching you suffer or who is honest about it. Are you ready for a fucking downer? I am in love with a girl who is suicidal. There's probably other ways of putting that, but, but that's what it comes down to. We started dating almost a year ago. We're kind of approaching the anniversary She's very anxious that I'm going to break up with her because in her experience, this is about when that kind of thing happens. I don't want to break up. And yet sometimes I feel like that might be the wiser thing to do. The weight of her problems is insurmountable. I, sometimes I feel that way anyway. And while she is very proactive with her own mental health care, she is very accountable as far as the things she needs to do for herself there is a certain amount of negativity that just is never going to change. That is just inherent to her being. There's trauma in her past. Of course, there's mental illness, of course, but all of that aside, she has a fundamental misunderstanding about what it takes to be someone's friend. I think now all that is, 
isn't to say that she's not a good girlfriend. In many ways, she is. She's enormously supportive. She's very hot. Um, and, and, and all other kinds of stuff. I mean, I could very much round her up to one, the one, but I still feel like she's holding herself hostage. Like, if this doesn't work out, if I just can't take it anymore, if I need a break from the negativity, she's going to off herself. Now, she has never said that explicitly. Never. But she's attempted to kill herself in her past. She has reached out to her support network and to hotlines when she has felt those things coming on. And it's usually precipitated by the loss of the job. But she goes through like toilet paper because it's that attitude and those mental illnesses, which make it very hard for her. She's struggling so much. I want to help and I want to be there for her. But I also want to feel like I can just bail out when it gets too much for me because I have my own things to work on. But I just don't know what the right way is here. Typically, when we get a question like this, it's framed a little differently or somebody's in a different place uh, than you are. Usually it's I want to go, but I can't go because my partner is threatening to off himself or herself if I leave. So here I am and I'm stuck. What do I do? But this is a little different. You don't want to go. It sounds like you would like to stay. You want to help. You love her. You think she's attractive. You'd like to be here for her. But you fear that there may come a time down the road where you want to go. And you won't be able to go if that time should ever come because you know that she may attempt suicide or threaten suicide if you leave then. So what do you do? You know, in the former case, somebody who wants to go but the person is threatening suicide, they're just attempting to control that person. They are taking themselves hostage. No longer a relationship. It's a hostage situation. They're taking themselves hostage and you hostage too. And you can't stay with somebody for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in a hostage situation. You have to go regardless. You want to make sure that you alert people, other people in that person's life, other family members. You want to make sure on your way out that they have access to resources, that the hotline phone numbers – that they have whatever they need to take care of themselves besides you being their hostage for the rest of their lives. And you still have a right to go. And if they should harm themselves, that ain't on you. You have to absolve yourself of that. That wasn't about you. That was about their mental illness, about their damage. And the fact that they've threatened to weaponize that damage to control you isn't something that you can acquiesce to. You still have to go. In this instance though, caller, with your predicament with your girlfriend – I don't think you should go just because you worry that you won't be able to go if a time comes when you want to go. But I think you should have a conversation with your girlfriend about this issue, that you've seen what happens when she loses a job. You would like to be her boyfriend. You would like to date her. But that's going to be difficult, if not impossible, if you aren't free to go if the relationship doesn't work out, that you worry now in the what should be the honeymoon stage of the relationship about being coming trapped in a relationship, about it becoming a hostage situation. It's not going to be a conversation that she enjoys, but I think it's a conversation that she could nail because you've seen her when she loses a job. You've seen her take care of herself. You've seen her reach out to the people that she needs to reach out to. You've seen her call the hotlines. You've seen her do what she needs to do to protect herself from her own worst and most self-destructive impulses. And I believe that she can assure you that she's lost boyfriends in the past, that because of her particular mental illnesses or symptoms or state that, yes, losing a boyfriend can be as traumatic, that 
that like losing a job, losing a boyfriend can induce suicidal ideation in her, but she knows what to do to take care of herself in those moments. And if she can assure you of that, even if it's a difficult conversation, even if it's a teary conversation, and you are assuring her the whole time that you have no desire to leave at this moment, it might make it possible for you to stay. And it sounds like you want to stay. So why not risk having that conversation that makes it possible for you to stay? It would be sad. It would be potentially tragic for you to end this relationship in case you want to end it down the road. So have this conversation with her for the relationship's sake, for your sake, and for her sake. Good luck. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to welcome a guest into the studio. Kate Bornstein is an author, performance artist, and now a little old lady. She (laughs) is the author of Gender Outlaw, Men, Women, and the Rest of Us. The memoir, a terrific memoir. You should read it. A Queer and Pleasant Danger, My New Gender Workbook. You've done so much groundbreaking work in the gender space, as they say. And you're an old friend. And you're an old friend. It's good to see you (laughs) again. It's good to see you too. Back in Seattle, you're here for a conference. I'm here for Gender Odyssey. It's the largest international trans conference in the world. Wow. And how does it feel to be sitting down with Twitter's most notorious transphobe before Gender Odyssey? Um, (laughs) You don't have to answer that question. But we were just talking before we started recording that you have – is it an announcement to make? You have – Gender development? How do you? How would you frame that? Well, I have. I, I am. I, I am. You announced it. I have a new gender, and it's little old lady. <laughs> and I have um, a gender I'm not any longer, and that's transgender. I I can no longer, in good conscience, call myself transgender, and that's. I'm still not used to that myself. You've been for a very long time one of the very first trans people I got to know. And a trans guest expert in Savage Love going back 23 years. I checked the first time you were in the column. But now I can't rely on you as a trans guest expert? Trans, yes. Transgender, no. Big difference oh, now. Explain the difference. Well, transgender used to be – we used the, 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 the word as an umbrella term um, back in the late 80s, early 90s. Anybody who's fucking around with gender <laughs> was transgender. That, and that was such a breakthrough. It didn't mean anything that had to do anything to do with penises or vaginas or hormones or nothing. If you – Whatever you wanted to be, you could be it, and that was transgender. In a but, way, because you were, was the the idea that you were transgressing sort of the gender terrorism of the binary. Why was transgender applied broadly to everybody messing around with gender and not just people who were transitioning from one gender to the other? Because transsexual was the word that was used by and large. And there were a whole lot of people who didn't want anything to do with surgery or hormones, and they were still – becoming men and women of their choice or deciding to be neither. Some other point along the gender spectrum, as I like to say in Savage Love. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, spectrum is is a problematic word, though, because it does posit. Ah, what word isn't problematic? I know, all? right? You, you learn the new lingo and then somebody <laughs> leaps out at you on Twitter to say, Oh, eh, no, wrong, wrong. Eh, we've evolved Bad Dan that. Savage, you triggered me. I know. The, the problem with spectrum is that there's boy stuff on one side and girl stuff on the other side. And those two things still haven't been pinpointed. We don't know what a man is. We don't know what a woman is. We don't know what male is. We don't know what female is. So maybe is. instead of gender spectrum, the gender jumble? Oh, I love it. The gender jumble. But that's not respectful enough. Oh, I'm sorry. What would be more respectful? Oh, the the gender knows? melange? Something French? <laughs> the gender buffet? 
I don't know. I do know that there's a new binary that's messing with people's heads, and that's transgender and cisgender. That's a binary, and I don't know anything that's two and two only and equal and opposite. So the, the, the identity that breaks trans and cis is non-binary. Which is what you identify as. Yeah. yeah. Why, why now? Why, why was trans comfortable for you once upon a time? And trans still is. Trans still, I'm sorry. Why was transgender comfortable? <laughs> the right label for you once upon a time and not Use right the right anymore. word, Stan I'm Savage. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Triggering me left and right. I'm, so, I'm, I'm trembling. I, I think you need a snigger warning, not a trigger warning. You're kind of giggling <laughs> as you claim to have been triggered. Yeah. I, I, I was in chemotherapy and radiation therapy for a couple of years and uh, it's all gone. I'm in remission, no cancer in my body. Yeah, we were all rooting for you. Thank you, yes. And a lot of people helped me get through that. That that was astounding, the support I got. Um, but and, I, and, to, and before you go on, deserved, because you have provided so much support for so many people over the years. A lot of people in, I don't know, the gender jumble space community, uh, you're called anti-Kate, you're sort of regarded as a pioneer, but also as a savior that may, I don't know, a savior, uh, someone who has really aided a lot of people in their own struggle and their own journey. I think of your book, 101 alternatives to suicide for teens, freaks and other outlaws by Kate Bornstein that I've heard from so many young people, uh, that, that it, it really helped them, that it was really important to them finding their, their, they're finding their feet and, and getting on their feet. And so before you go on the, the, the love and support that you got, when you were diagnosed with cancer that poured out of, I think, all corners uh, was a dividend, a small dividend on, on how much you'd given to other people, payback and deserved. Thank you for saying that. Appreciate it. I do. Waking up literally a week after I finished my last chemotherapy and radiation treatment, there was Time Magazine and Laverne Cox on the cover, and it was pronouncing transgender tipping point. I'm, what the hell? What? 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 I was at once thrilled and appalled. I I knew that there were so many people who were nowhere near a tipping point. Um, people who were non-binary, people who were genderqueer, people who called themselves, like myself, a tranny, uh, chicks with dicks, uh, she-males. You just said tranny, and I'm going to get yelled at for not beeping it when it goes out on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Well, you didn't beep fuck either. I didn't. Nah. You nah. just brought up tranny on in your Twitter feed asking people how they felt about that word and yeah. how they used it. And you've argued, and others have argued, Justin Bond, that this was a word that united uh, all people – for a time before it was declared a toxic hate term, that it was a term of affection and in-group support. When did it become toxic exactly? And who, when was the meeting of the Trans Politburo that decided that this word was verboten? I don't know exactly. I can trace how it happened, but I don't know the exact years it happened. Tranny started in the 70s and 80s in Sydney, Australia, and it was coined there to 
unite or to create a family name for all the transsexuals, transvestites and drag queens who were working in drag mm-hmm. in Sydney. And they bickered and they like to each other. We're better than you. No, you're better. And but they realized they were all family. And so whatever else they said, yeah, yeah, but we're trannies together. And you can see that in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Mm-hmm. And so my drag mom, Doris Fish, came from Sydney uh, to San Francisco, took me under her wing, taught me about the word tranny and oh so much more. And we just started using it, transsexuals, male to female, female to male. I know there's a big thing, you know, you're female to male, you can't use it. No, of course you can use it. And cross-dressers, we were just going, yeah, you're family. You're weird, but you're family. Okay, mm-hmm. great. Uh, then the word caught on in with sex workers. And you had people who were calling themselves she-males and chicks with dicks uh, now calling themselves tranny. And so a whole genre was born of tranny porn. Mm-hmm. And all I can imagine that happened is that because it was such an underground word – the only place it broke into anything like mainstream was through pornography, um, that people watched tranny porn, paid for the services of a tranny sex worker, and then hated themselves so much for doing that and were so ashamed that they had to turn it into a hate word. Mm-hmm. And that's how it has become a hate word. A lot of people talk about, oh, you can't reclaim that. And we don't need to reclaim it. It was our word to start with. So when, you know, someone calls me, some cisgender person calls me tranny, I go, yeah, what are you, cisgender my... person? You're a sissy? Yeah, I like sissy. I, I got, I've, I've used C-I-S-S-I-E. Exactly. And gotten yelled at for it because no. I'm making fun of it. But, uh, you know, when somebody calls me a faggot, my response has always been, uh-huh. Bingo. You got it. Bingo. Tranny is to transgender as faggot is to gay man as dyke is to lesbian. Ta-da. And there was – and I think a lot of these young queer activists out there today have forgotten what happened in the late 80s, early 90s when we had this movement to reclaim the hate terms, to use them ourselves. Queer, faggot, dyke, sissy, pervert, tranny. And that this reclaiming uh, is so – Long ago, so forgotten, queer people don't learn their histories from their queer parents. They learn them sort of uh, – it's a lateral pass for queer history and a lot of young queer people aren't that up on queer history and so not up on it that many of them don't even know that queer itself is for many adult LGBT people a hate term that they cannot abide. That all of these organizations – I was attacked by a group for using tranny in a conversation. The use mentioned distinction. I wasn't using tranny as a word to describe anyone. We were talking about the use of the word, Mm -hmm. talking about reclaiming. And the group that sort of led the charge in attacking me for using the word was called Queers United in Power. Oh, dear. So to be attacked for using a reclaimed hate word by a group whose name – includes a reclaimed hate word was highly ironic and aggravating as hell. Tranny is just a word. Now, if someone says the word with hate and anger and threat, yeah, run. Run I've said that intent makes a word hateful, not an arrangement of letters. Exactly. So hearing the word tranny, what does that do? That's going to – I'm told it triggers people. Okay. I live with PTSD. 
and I live with borderline personality disorder. The whole thing about borderline people is that pretty much anything triggers us. We're off to the races. We have no real control over our emotions. And our whole therapy is learning how to sidestep triggers when they happen. And if we are triggered, how to untrigger ourselves. It's called dialectic behavioral therapy, and that's what it's all about. So people who are genuinely triggered by the word tranny, uh, the few who've been, or not, or the many who've been insulted as trannies, um, I don't know that that's a real trigger. Trigger has, has also gone through a redefinition and now means it upsets me, it offends me, uh, it makes me feel not safe. Trigger used to mean throwing you right back into a horrible moment of trauma mm-hmm. so that you believe you're reliving it. And, and I believe that that happens, but not by the mention of the word. Uh, if it upsets you, if it offends you, if it makes you feel unsafe, Please step back, breathe, and look at what is behind the word. Whenever I say it, I say it with a lot of love and respect. Do you get grief when you use it? Oh, golly, yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, we we don't want to boil the whole discussion about trans issues or gender down to just those, what, five, six letters. And it's not ultimately, I I think, that important. Um, But I'm surprised that you don't even have license to use it. No, no, no. I get called transphobic because of it. I get called uh, a danger to transgender people. And not a queer and pleasant one? Just Not a queer and pleasant one, but just a plain old dangerous me. And lately I've been called um, old, which I go, yeah. But anyway, I have the old way of talking about transgender. Okay. Well, about trans. See, I'm not used to it yet. Transgender. Let me get back to transgender. <laughs> That's a little little easier to deal with. Transgender tipping point. Uh, Laverne Cox. Uh, transgender, when it's used in the press now or in any kind of media, means a binary type of trans person. They're now a man or a woman, a trans man and a trans woman. Anything else is trans but not transgender. Um, okay, words change. They're going to change again. People will dig up this interview. They will. Years and years from now, and they'll go, what? Oh, those, those words don't exist anymore. Dan mm. Savage is old. I'm uh, happy to be old. Sometimes people <laughs> throw that at me, like old fag, and I'm like, I'm 50. You know how many guys I watch die at 25 and 30? It's a privilege oh. to be a 50-year-old fag. And so many people missed out oh. on that privilege. And so people throw that at me, and I'm like, oh, that does not wound me at all. That reminds me of how fortunate I am. 50, you're in training for curmudgeon. <laughs> oh, always. Yes. My whole fucking life. Yeah. I arrived yeah. curmudgeonly. <laughs> so, um, I want to ask you quickly hmm. about I Am Kate and what you think of the impact that Caitlyn Jenner's transition and, and how public it's been uh, is having. It's wonderful. Um, we're seeing a transgender woman who really doesn't pass, but who's beautiful at the same time. And her beauty is a transgender beauty. And so people have to admire this woman. She's a woman, but she looks part man, part woman. And usually that would be 
uh, grounds enough for simply that's a freak. Mm-hmm. And now it's not. That's a Caitlin is beautiful kind of thing. We're so and, then, that, and you called it once in my column a long time ago, that mix that trans people often bring this mix that some people find very alluring and attractive to the table. And why shouldn't that be legitimately attractive or acknowledged as attractive? That's still an issue. Mm-hmm. It is not acknowledged as attractive yet. Um, the only reason – I pass. I pass now. People, I walk down the street. People think, oh, little old lady. And so enough people think that 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 is my new gender now mm-hmm. um, but not transgender because I'm not a man. I'm not a woman. Um, you've got – all right, queer and straight are two different words as well. But let's say – Faggot and gay man is to genderqueer and non-binary. Genderqueer is the queer version of non-binary. With me? Uh, yeah, I just feel like everybody out there who is not queer needs an Excel spreadsheet now open in front of them to keep yeah. track of not just the gender identities but the sexual – demisexuals and pansexuals. Just the, It just seems like – I don't know, the passion and the effort that straight people put into making babies, most of them, we're putting into this lexiconal kind of explosion of terminology that everyone's going to get tested on and everyone's going to fail and then everyone gets attacked for in turn for failing their vocabulary test when it comes to sexual orientations, gender identity. And what does that get down to? I'm trying to grab this one by the tail, Dan. What does that get down to when you fail the vocabulary test? What have you done? You've misgendered someone. Nobody wants to be misgendered. Um, cis people don't want to be misgendered. Oh, you're not a real man. You're a faggot. You know? Doesn't bother me. I know. <laughs> but it does what bother comes with some real people. Man, if it comes with like the real man laurels is I can't do half the things that I like to do, that I can't bake, that I can't uh, suck a dick, that I can't, if I wanted to do drag again, do drag again. Like who wants to be a real man? It's much more freeing to be an unreal man. For years, way before there was a word for transgender, um, cisgender people, before that word, people would hurt each other by saying, you're not a real man for this reason. You're not a real woman for this reason. You're not a real woman until you've had a child. You're not um, a real man until you've killed your first German. You know, whatever. There there have been these. And, oh, and was that it was kill a- your first German? I totally messed that up. I blew my first German. I thought that was when I became a real man. I moved to Germany in my 20s. Was it kill? I was about to kill one? I fucked a few. Well, you see, that's a generational <laughs> thing. But that's what the pronoun thing comes down to and the bathroom thing comes down to is being – is correctly gendering a person and a person is male or female and that's why pronouns are so important to people. But really, really, what's it come down to? So someone misgenders you. Someone thinks you're a different gender and they say so. So the fuck what? Okay, for the first year when you're newly transgender and you're you're trying out this identity and your your new pronoun, let's say, is she and her. Okay, and it's real important to you. Yeah, you get a year of going ballistic when people misgender you. After that, get over it. There's some reason people are misgendering you. Deal with that. What if the reason that people are misgendering is you is that you don't pass and people are not respecting your professed identity? It's one thing to be misgendered by some stranger on a street corner. It's another thing to be misgendered by a coworker, by a child, by a friend, by a parent. Who knows? 
that you've explained all of this to. Are you allowed to go ballistic then, even after the year? You're allowed to feel very sorry for them. Look how long it took you to come to terms with being this new gender. It took you years and years and years. Most likely, these days it does usually. Um, my mom intention, and my brother intentionally misgendered me uh, for at least a year. My brother till the day he died. Um, but my mom But in tried. his memory, let's say my brother till the day she died. <laughs> let's just misgender that motherfucker right back. No, no, no. He was okay. He was okay. We loved each other. We didn't like each other very much. There's a big difference. And there's that whole thing about family again. Mm-hmm. So when family doesn't respect your gender, let's say, let's say it's your mom, your dad, or... Uh, your child or a close friend, and they go, no, you're not a real woman. I'm going to keep calling you he. You're a man. You go, well, you know, if that's the case, I don't want to be near you on that. I'm going to go away now. And when you want to talk about that a little bit more, let's talk about it a little bit more. That's but, my advice for people. Your, le- your leverage over your parents, over your family is your presence. Yeah. And if they don't respect you, you have to be willing to use that leverage. You make yourself absent. Exactly. Until they learn their lesson. They exactly. want you around. They have to respect you for who Bingo. you are. Bingo. And that's why you're the most amazing advice columnist <laughs> ever. It's so nice for you to say that. Will you take some questions with us and give some advice? Let me tell you, it's a racket. Anybody can do it. You look up <laughs> advice in dictionaries as opinion about what could or should be done. The only qualification you need to give your opinion is some motherfucker was stupid enough to ask you for it. I love you. So we have some questions that we want to throw at you. Here Let you go. play the advice game. Okay. Hey, Dan. Uh, my name's Sam. I'm from Colorado. I have a quick question for you regarding my family and my brother. Uh, who recently came out as uh, trans. Um, He lives in Chicago with his girlfriend, and I am absolutely fine with it. I love him more because of him coming out. Uh, I've talked to him a few times regarding the process of coming out and that sort of thing and how he came to that decision. My question centers around uh, how to be there for my folks who live in Illinois uh, while I am you know, currently living in Colorado. Uh, my, my dad is a person that would uh, love and support any one of me and my brothers, uh, regardless of what we came to him with. My mom, you know, of course, being a mom is concerned about uh, my brother. And my brother has had several episodes where he's been out in public uh, as a female, as opposed to a male. Uh, you know, he has a male driver's license at this point. And, you know, he's starting to come across some of those issues that you've talked about in the past, you know, such as male-female bathrooms, uh, male-female, um, just anything male-female. And I really would like some advice on how to enable my mom specifically to kind of, you know, accept my brother, uh, accept his choices and understand that him coming out as trans does not equate with her being a failure as a parent or you know, not, not being successful as a parent. Okay. So I, I assumed all through the call, since he's the supportive sibling, that the sibling who is transitioning was transitioning to male. A trans man. Yeah. Hence brother, him, brother, him, brother, him. But then at the end, the detail comes forward. It sounds like his sibling is transitioning 
too female. And the first thing we would, I would think both advise him is to start using the correct pronouns. Exactly. Because that's a sign of respect. And if you, if your mom is not getting that you respect your sister, she's not going to have any reason to, to go forward and respecting him, her in any way. You just misgendered somebody. See, it happens. It's confusing to me. <laughs> um, so we all get it. We all get a pass now and then. We all people don't have to blow up or lose their shit or go nuclear. Got to. But you know, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that, like Caitlyn Jenner, there was that window after Caitlyn announced that she was transgender, where she requested to still be referred to as Bruce and with male pronouns. Remember that little that confusing was time? Wonderful. It was it was very confusing because people were correctly gendering Bruce then Caitlin now the way she requested to be gendered, and other people were blowing up at them, at blowing up at those people for misgender. It was it was this crazy, I thought, kind of delicious moment, right? Um, and of course, the craziest thing about Caitlyn Jenner is the Republican thing. Let's not talk about that. So maybe that's the case here. Maybe. His sibling has just begun to transition and is not yet ready for uh, – has requested that that he continue to use brother and him, his. Uh, and let's answer the other question then. After giving him the benefit of the doubt, after scolding him, what's the best way to bring his parents around? How can he be the best advocate for his trans sibling? I think the the best way to do it is to model the way. Don't, don't try and force it like, mom – be like me. I'm I'm respecting her. I'm using her and she, and sometimes I slip, but I correct myself. No, 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 no. Just use her and she and sister. And, oh, oh, I failed as a mom. No, I, I love you. You're a terrific mom. Oh, yes, but he was supposed to be my son, and now he's saying he's a daughter. Well, you did mom so good that you modeled a really good role for him. Her. See, I, it's confusing. This, all right, here's the thing about Caitlin. I am Kate. Mm-hmm. We've never before been privy to a person's transition. We've seen the before and we've seen the after, but we've never seen the how to become. And that's what we're seeing now on I am Kate. We're like, we're, we're peeking inside the cocoon. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to force your mom to respect your new sister. You can only model that respect and hope your mom adopts it. You can also, and I've said this to other siblings of queer people who are being abused by their families of origin, in the same way that that queer kid should use their presence as leverage, you as a supportive sibling can also use your presence as leverage. Uh, That you can, I think, be an advocate for your queer sib. You can get in your parents' faces and maybe you should. But if at a certain point you're witnessing your queer sibling just being terrorized and abused by your parents, by your family of origin, I think a a point comes where you have to say, I'm not going to be around you either, that I'm not going to be a party to this abuse or complicit in it by coming home for Thanksgiving when if my sister comes home for Thanksgiving, you abuse her that way. I would say yes, absolutely to that. But I think the question was more, how do I reassure my mom that she's not a failure? By telling her that if parental failure made kids trans or gay, they would all be trans and gay. Because all parents <laughs> fail, right? All parents screw up. And it's why only the parents of queers have to like lope around the house wondering what they did wrong. And clearly all parents, myself included, we, we fuck up. We do the wrong things. If that induced queerness, we would all be queer. Ah. Oh. 
And that is why you are the advice expert <laughs> of the century. Oh, please. You're very good at this advice stuff too. Something that you write about in uh, A Queer and Pleasant Danger, uh, another sort of zeitgeisty cultural issue that you are wrapped up in and have a long history with, Scientology. Huh. Yeah. You were a Scientologist for many years. You for were high. 12 years. I was way up there. Yeah. At, in the Sea Org. Uh-huh. Did you know L. Ron Hubbard? He was still alive when you were involved. He was alive and kicking. He was the commodore of the sea organization. We actually had a bunch of ships. And, well, we had one ship and a couple of boats. Um, I was the <laughs> Which first. Which just mate. seems crazy. Like in, in Going Clear, he looks like Thurston <laughs> Howell III up there in his little hat. I know, right? We all wore those little hats though. Um, what the I, hell was Sea Org? Why, why, why did a religion need a boat? Why the high seas? What he told us was that we could get on with our work without distraction. The real reason was he was being kicked out. He was kicked out of the United States. He was kicked out of England. He was kicked out of South Africa. He was pretty much kicked out anywhere on land that he, that he was landing. And so we stayed way out at sea, whereabouts unknown. And where we sailed was up and down the coast of Morocco and Portugal. Inventing a religion along the way. Well, now, none of us believed it was a religion then. That's what's really weird. When I joined, I asked, so is this a religion? Oh, no, no. It's an applied religious philosophy. Those are the exact words. Not a religion. And I remember going up, he had his own deck on the ship with all his his high-level aides. And we used to joke. We used to go, oh, my God, we're going to start wearing dog collars now to make them believe we're a religion. We we knew that's what it was. Mm -hmm. But now it has changed. That's not the Scientology that I was part of. Now people really believe they have a religion in Scientology. And it was the religious fervor that spawned the religion itself. It wasn't that there was a religious belief. It was it people's was, sort of religious fervor for these tenets yeah. transformed the whole ball of wax into a religion in the end. But that was his intent all along, wasn't it? Mm, I guess it was. And what was he like as a person? <sighs> you knew Jesus. What was he like as a person? You he knew was, Scientology he was, Jesus. He was daddy. He he fostered that image of daddy. He'd oh he'd be your pal. You mm. know, he'd oh shucks and oh golly, but don't get daddy angry. He would go into screaming fits, throwing things, yelling at you, spit would come flying out of his mouth, which contained lots of yellow teeth because he was afraid of dentists, never went to a dentist. Um he had a horrible breath. How does someone like that inspire people to follow him to sea or anywhere else? We all followed his words first. When we got to meet him, I mean, he was huge. He was like 6'4", 6'3", 6'4", and must have weighed well over 250. He was a, we all thought he looked like Jabba the Hutt. And we would say that, only we couldn't say it out loud many places. It's like the sexual orientation, sapiosexual. You're really attracted to someone because they're so smart. When he would talk about space, 
opera stuff, when he would talk about flying around the universe, you know, 14 million years ago, and he would paint pictures like, well, did you like, for example, did you like anything like Star Wars or Star Trek or any space thing at all? And you never nope, did. Never. You would have hated Scientology because that was <laughs> all it was. That was the good stuff. We were here. We were back together again after 76 million years. We were back together again, us loyal officers, and this time we're going to save the planet. But we don't have much time. But first we're going to detail Tom Cruise's car. Yeah, well, this is before Tom Cruise. Did you see Going Clear? Yeah, I did. What do you think? And and having been in Scientology and now out of Scientology, what's your opinion of it? Is it a religion? How should the rest of us regard it? Sure, it's a religion. Sure, why not? Um, it's in its cult stage as a religion. It's in its fundamental stage. It's fun, it's founding stages. And yes, they are fundamentalists when it comes to the words of their founder. The problem is that the words of their founder are really mean. They can be stupid. Many religions have stupid words, but his words are also very mean. Like what? Um, if someone speaks out against Scientology, you have to get them to agree to shut up or you can never speak with them or accept communication from them ever again. That's a situation with me and my daughter. I last saw my daughter when she was nine. She's now 40. Uh, she's a big deal Scientology Sea Org person in California. It's built in to the Church of Scientology, this policy of disconnection. That's mean. Um, and that's so self-evidently one of the sort of tenets or practices of an abusive cult. Is this not common knowledge that a religious organization that attempts to isolate you from friends and family that declares other people uh, forbidden or, or, or unclean and you have to cast them out to be in good standing yourself? Do not people who are in Scientology recognize that as a problem? Did you not recognize it as a problem for the years that you no, were involved? No, I didn't. The, the, what, what, sci, what, what Going Clear, the film, points out is the slow process of – Indoctrination. Yeah. And what you get indoctrinated to the point of accepting everything that L. Ron Hubbard ever said or wrote as literally gospel. Literally, this is the good word. This is what you believe in. And he was so paranoid that if someone did attack Scientology, it's policy that you can do anything to them. It's called fair game. This is also another mean thing. And this is why they come they, – they, there's a new book out uh, called The Unbreakable Miss Lovely by uh, Tony Ortega, former editor of – Village Voice. Village Voice. And he writes about Paulette Cooper who in, 19, in the early 70s wrote a book called The Scandal of Scientology. And the Church of Scientology pursued her for over 25 years – uh, laying traps for her, trying to get her framed. Uh, they had her, you know, framed for a bomb threat. They managed to snag a fingerprint from her that they put on a piece of paper that convinced the U.S. government that she was guilty of a bomb threat. Um, this is what they do. They'll do 
anything. Have you been attacked by the Church of Scientology? You've been an outspoken, I wouldn't say critic necessarily, but you've written about your experiences in a very personal way, and they, I think, add up to a, a filleting of the church. Yeah, thank you. I um, I intended to fillet the church. I I It took me a long time to figure out how to do it. And what I do in the memoir is I talk freely about all the reasons people think I'm a liar. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a good actor. I'm an actor. People think actors, they always suspect actors of not telling the real truth. And, you know, in in the days of the Wild West, for example, no women, no coloreds, no actors. You know, that, that, was, that was the big deal you, because you couldn't trust an actor. Okay. Um, Scientology has labeled me a suppressive person. That's what they call people who attack them or leave. Their own definition of a suppressive person is they only tell lies. So I said, okay, everything I'm saying in here could be a big lie. That's what you're going to hear from Scientology. Mm-hmm. So I already admit that I might be lying uh, or I could be seen as lying. And I say, but I'm telling you the truth. And the other thing is I am such an extreme freaky queer in in my story, you know, putting it all down on paper, I came to realize that, that I guess that when their lawyers read the book and went to David Miscavige, they probably said, you know what, this person's too much of a freak. No one's going to believe her anyway. And they've got bigger fish to fry. I believe you. And I spend a lot of time in LA and the place that I stay is right around the corner from a giant Scientology recruitment center. Big blue. Uh, I've down the street and I see people sometimes on Hollywood Boulevard going into the like information center. What would you say to someone on a sidewalk who had taken the pamphlet and was about to walk into that building? What does someone who knows nothing about Scientology who might be tempted by one of these street outreach people, what do they need to know? I would say ask them about love. Ask them uh, about compassion. Ask them flat out, what do you do with critics of Scientology? How do, you, how do you treat critics of Scientology? Have you seen the movie Going Clear? Ask them about the movie Going Clear. And if all you get is attack, 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 take that into account, that you, you're going into an organization where you won't be allowed to criticize and are you sure you want to do that? Would David Muscovich be burning people at the stake at Hollywood and Vine if it was within his power to do so? Um, most assuredly. He is very big into physical discipline. Uh, he keeps people locked away. I know people who are locked in a, in a, have been locked in a Scientology prison for over 10 years, sleeping on the floor. And these are people who, given the chance to leave, probably wouldn't. They'd say, no, I deserve to be here. That's how poisonous that stuff is. Hence the subtitle for the film going clear, The Prison of Belief. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much, Kate, for coming in today. It's been such a joy to talk with you. After having been strung up on a gallows with you so many times, it's a joy. Have you been strung up on a gallows with me? Oh, yes. You and me and Buck, you know, we're, we're a terrible trio. <laughs> well, I love you. I love Buck. Um, and you and I are going to go out to lunch now. We're going to take a break recording. Where can people find you online? Where can they find your books? Where can they find your website? Um, the best way to get in touch with me or see what I'm doing is on Twitter or Instagram where I am 
one word, Kate Bornstein. Get my books anywhere. I would recommend independent bookstores first. And I would recommend uh, A Queer and Pleasant Danger. It is a terrific memoir. Um, and I, I just loved it. I devoured it when it uh, before it came out. You sent me an advanced copy and I devoured it. And if you're a young person and you're struggling with any sort of issue, but with uh, gender issues or sexual orientation issues, you really must read Hello, Cruel World, 101 Alternatives to Suicide for Teens, Freaks and Other Outlaws by Kate Bornstein, a book that has saved countless lives. Thank you so much, Dan. Hi, Dan. Uh, I've been just listening to episode 465 with your scientist who is on discussing uh, condoms and sensitivity and condom avoidance tactics. Well, you've talked about this for a long time, uh, but I actually have the solution to your quandary. Uh, my wife and I uh, are in a non-monogamous relationship, and we use condoms with each other, with other people, but not with each other. So I have experience doing things both ways. Uh, I have to say that when I do use condoms, it does decrease sensitivity immediately after I first put it on. Uh, but after a while, then I kind of uh, lose track of having it. And I don't notice the change in sensation very much after maybe 20 or 30 seconds. So that might be the the answer to your quandary, um, is that actually it does, that condoms actually do reduce sensitivity, uh, but only for the first period after you've entered your partner. So maybe that's why uh, why you always say men can have them slip off and not notice it. Hey, Dan, I'm just calling in response to the woman who was dating the guy from OkCupid and looked at his Instagram feed and saw, you know, that he was hanging out with his girlfriend or ex-girlfriend. I was surprised to hear you consider that snooping. I feel like that's actually really normal behavior to be looking at someone's social media stuff. I think if she had been like looking on his computer, signing into his email account, looking through his things at his house without permission, all of that seems like snooping. But I think seeing something on this guy's Instagram feed or on someone who's connected to his Instagram feed, I think that that's not something she should be apologizing for or feeling bad about. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about episode 465 and that very brave man who had a terrible experience in childhood. I thought one thing that you could have mentioned to him was maybe recommending something like Ian Kerner's She Comes First. It's such a good book, and Kerner talks a lot in the introduction about how part of what motivated him to get to be so amazing at going down on women or his wife, I guess, is uh, his struggle with erectile dysfunction. So I thought that one thing that this guy could, you know, sort of take on as a challenge is just becoming a boss at going down on his partner. And uh, she will like it. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. We're going to be doing a live taping of the Savage Lovecast at Ophelia's Electric Soapbox in Denver, Colorado on October 15th. If you've never been to a live taping of the Savage Lovecast, they are fun. And we are planning some big fun for the show October 15th at Ophelia's. Go to thestranger.com slash savagelovedenver to order tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Kate Bornstein on Twitter at Kate Bornstein. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescued and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for listening.